Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, hello and welcome to the Vineyard. Excited you're here. If you got a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 8 and verse 1. We are almost halfway through the book of Mark. We've been at this for about 24 weeks. I think this is part 24 of our series. We're going through Mark, uh, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, verse by verse, really diving in and trying to get to know who Jesus was minus all the cultural and religious baggage that we've picked up along the way, but just really get to know the real Jesus. If you're the, if this is your first time with us, welcome. Come along for the rest of this journey. It gets better from here, and you can go back and watch the rest on our website for totally free, and I encourage you to do so. This is a fun journey. Let me ask you, uh, as you're getting to Mark chapter 8 uh, in your Bibles, let me ask you a question. Have you ever faced a situation in your life where you freaked out, like like you couldn't see a way out. It was, you know, maybe you lost your job or you were in an accident or a relative got sick or you screwed up a DIY project. I've never done that before and added like an extra week to it because of how you did the plumbing. I don't know what I'm talking about. It, it, it's, you know, and you have that moment where you're like, ah, and internally you're, you're, you're kind of melting down. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever not been there. Nobody has. We've all been there because that is our human nature. When things get out of our control, when when things are scary, we tend to freak out. Now, if you're a person of faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the moment where you forget about your faith. And we all do this from time to time. We forget about how God came through. We forget about how he provided for us or the healing that, uh, that came at just the right time. We forget about the way, the, the times when he made a way when there was no way. We forget about those. Uh, or we forget about the fact that the last time we screwed up a DIY project and it ended up taking an extra week, that was actually a good thing because we discovered something more significant that needed to be fixed, and it was God getting us to where we needed to be. And you can apply that to any place in your life. Detours are God's way of getting us to where we need to be and dealing with the things we need to deal with in our life, right? But we forget that, and we freak out, and we all do it. And what I love about today's passage is that we see the disciples do the same thing. This gives me great hope. So Mark 8 Verse 1, this is what it says. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his, his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Jesus is gathered with, with a bunch of people teaching for three days on the hillside. Let me just stop right there and say, for those of you who get uncomfortable when I go past 35 minutes, like, you know, three days? Okay, he wasn't teaching for three days, but, but, but they were, he was teaching longer than 35 minutes. So let's all, because this, this message, this is a three-hour message. I just want you to be aware. All right, so just kidding. Hang in there. 
32 minutes and 55 seconds. That's, that's my guess. Uh, anyway, so Jesus has these people in this place. They're out in a remote location, three days. Everybody's hanging on every word that he's saying, but he also has to know that they're running out of food. And so Jesus creates a situation where if Jesus doesn't come through, they're in trouble. People are going to pass out on the way home. People aren't going to make it home. One of the things that I, I see in life all along the way is that Jesus will do the same thing in our lives. He will lead us into situations where we're not going to solve the problem on our own. We need Him, and then we have an opportunity to test our faith, build our faith, and see Jesus come through. In verse 4, it says, His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Stop. I know some of you are thinking right now, Chris, we've already covered this passage. Jesus feeds, you know, he multiplies the bread and the fishes and he feeds the 5,000. Well, that is exactly what happens here, except that he doesn't feed 5,000, he feeds 4,000. This is a separate and different account. If you remember two chapters ago in Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000. It was 5,000 men, so it was really like 15,000 men, women, and children. Very similar amount of food, and he multiplies it and he turns it into enough food to feed all of them with leftovers. And that's exactly what he does here. This is two chapters later. He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, what we don't know is how much time there was between these two events, Jesus feeding the, the, the 15,000 versus this is 4,000 people total. It's a smaller miracle, a smaller number of people. But what we don't know is how much time there is between these two events. I mean, it could have been last week. It could have been... Months ago, might have been a year and a half ago, we don't know. But you would think, I'm just saying, you would think that if you watched Jesus multiply a box lunch into enough food to feed 15,000 people, you would remember that, right? You would expect. But the disciples clearly don't remember that. And so their response is, where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? They're kind of freaking out. Hear the tone in their voice. This isn't like, oh, Jesus, where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? Because, you know, because, you know, you're up for it. So we'll see what happens. No, they're freaking out. They're, they're, they're like, where, what are we going to do? People are going to, we got to do something. Jesus. Well, he responds. He says, he tells the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. Now, these loaves of bread were not what we think of, like going to Panera and getting a big loaf of French bread or whatever. These are, these are little mini bread, traveling breadsticks. It's kind of like the bottomless bowl of bread at Panera. I don't eat bread anymore because it, it doesn't agree with me, but I love the bottomless bowl of breadsticks at Panera. Now, in fact, I think it's somewhat miraculous. You eat them, and they bring you more, and then you eat them, and they bring you more, and they bring you salad that's yummy too. It's awesome. Everybody's going to Panera today after church. Um, 
or not Panera, uh, Olive Garden. I love that. So these, these are these little breadsticks. So they're not even like, here's, not that it would make a difference, here's seven big loaves of bread. No, these seven little loaves of bread. And Jesus takes the little stuff that his disciples do have to offer, and he makes it enough for the situation at hand. And he does the same thing with us. He takes what little we have to offer, if we will give it to him and not keep it for ourselves, but we will surrender it to him and say, this is what we got. He will take it and make it enough, not just for us, but for everything and for everyone. That's how Jesus rolls. Now, Jesus includes his disciples in this miracle, which is something that I love because they're having a failure of faith at this moment. <laughs> they're like, ah! and he's not like, okay, time out. You guys are in the penalty box. I'm going to take care of this. But he takes what little they have to offer. He multiplies it. He gives it to the disciples. Well, I don't, actually, we don't even know how this multiplication happened. I mean, did Jesus like take it and say, okay, seven pieces of bread, 12 disciples. All right, we'll break them in half. Everybody gets a half. Um, and, uh, and there's a couple extra, whatever. And then they just, you know, they break off a piece and give it to somebody. And then all of a sudden it's whole again, or, you know, it's a, and it just keeps going. Did it happen like that? Did he, did he break them in half and give thanks for them and, and then sit down in front of each disciple and say, stand back. Cause, you know, we, we don't know. We don't know how that worked. All we know. And I think there, there's a reason for that too, because if we knew how that worked, then we would be trying to do that, right? I mean, we want the formula, but going back to what we talked about last week, Jesus doesn't give us that option. Scripture doesn't give us that option. What he does though, is he takes the little bit that the disciples had to offer, he multiplies it, and then he includes them in the miracle in serving these people. In verse 7, they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So they went from seven breadsticks to seven bottomless bowls of breadsticks. And so those pieces were left over, and 4,000 were present. Now... What's going on here with the disciples? And really, I think there's two things that could be going on in their heads and in their hearts as this miracle is unfolding. The first is they simply forgot what Jesus did two chapters ago. They find themselves in a, in a crisis situation. They freak out. They just forgot. I have compassion for these guys because I do this all the time. Right? I, you know, I, everything is good. And then I hit a storm and I'm like, oh God, what are we going to do? You know, and, and you do this all the time too. God provided, God provides miraculously. And, uh, and, and then I'm good until the next storm where I think I'm going under the next financial crisis or whatever it is. I was talking to a friend this week. And we were talking about my sermon from last weekend, and he, he said, you know how you said that God gives you uh, houses? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, I was thinking as you were saying that, and God gives me jobs. I'm like, well, tell me about that. And he said, well, every time I've come to the end of a job, God has always had another job waiting for me that was better than the last one I had. 
And he said, I know that doesn't happen to everybody always, but that's always been the case for me. He's always provided. He's always had something better for me to step into next. And he said, I, I don't know why. He goes, I'm grateful for it. I'm like, that's great. And I'm like, so, so what's going on? And he goes on to tell me about how he's in a bit of a crisis in his current job and things are kind of up in the air and he's not sure what to do. And, and he's kind of in, internally very unsettled and freaking out a little bit. And, uh, and uh, I was like, I stopped him and I said, you know, God gives you jobs, don't you? And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, so, so if this doesn't work out, you're going you're gonna to land fine because God, how many times has God taken, and he's counted all the times that God has taken care of him. I, I think there's a real difference between what we consider intellectual faith. You know, we understand the theology of Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he, he, he came down from heaven and became a human being and lived a perfect life and, and died on the cross because the payment for sin was death, and he paid it as a substitutionary sacrifice on, on our behalf, and that uh, he rose from the dead, and that if we put our faith in him and follow him, that that sacrifice is counted towards our account and our sins are washed away. And that's, that's an intellectual faith. We can, we can understand that. There's a big difference between an intellectual faith and a practical faith. And, um, and practical faith is when the storms come and we're not freaking out anymore. Practical faith, or we're not freaking out as bad. But here's the deal about practical faith. First, the disciples aren't there yet, not in this passage, not in chapter 8. They haven't gotten there yet. They have a, they, they're, they're working out the intellectual faith. They don't have a practical faith at this point. It's a process. Practical faith is a process. It is for me. It is for you. My faith, hopefully, is not as strong as it will be, but stronger than it was um, in a practical standpoint. Um, it's a process we, we walk through. Now, the disciples, they, they either forgot what Jesus did two chapters ago, or they didn't think he would do it again. You know, I know God provided before, but I'm not sure he's going to this time, right? It's, it's, it's a question of his, his faithfulness and his goodness, which Jesus has proven over and over again, but they're questioning it again. Practical faith is a process. And I think really what we're saying in that situation is I'm not sure God will do what I want God to do this time. I came up with a definition of faith just for this sermon. Um, and I think faith is when we are sure of God's provision and okay with his plan. When we're sure of his uh, provision that he's going to provide for us, and we're okay with his plan, like his plan is probably better than my plan. But I think there's a, a step beyond faith, and that's the step of peace. So we have faith, and then we have faith with peace. And peace is when we look forward to his plan, knowing his plan is better than our plan. And we look forward to his provision. The question is, that I hope you're asking right now, is how do you get there? How do you get to a place of practical faith in your relationship with God? 
So that it's not just this transactional forgiveness of sins and I get into heaven, but this really changes the way I navigate day-to-day life, that I navigate the challenges and the problems that I'm going to face and the crises that I'm going to see in this, in this life. It, it changes my peace level. How do you build that? Which brings me to my first point in the message. If you have your travel journal, I want to invite you to pull it out and write this down. Number one, counting your blessings builds your faith. Counting your blessings builds your faith. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 and 18, it says this, Rejoice always, pray continually, so have a constant conversation with God. And then in verse 18, it says this, Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, I want you to understand that it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. If you have a sick loved one, you're not like, thank you, the grandma's sick. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, even though grandma's sick, I am going to thank you for the good things that I have, the good things that you have done, all of that. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why is this God's will for you in Christ Jesus? Because this guys, is how we build our faith. Our propensity, our go-to, our default is to forget what God has done. When, When a crisis hits, we tend to go negative inside. It's, it it is the, it is the, the inertia of our culture. And what Thanksgiving does, what, what Counting our blessings does. And what I mean by that is if you've got the the travel journal for the trip through Mark, write in that daily. I am grateful for this and this, and I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for air in my lungs. I am grateful for your provision. I've seen, and then when something happens and you see God come through, write that down. I'm grateful for this so you can go back and revisit it. And it reminds us what God has already done. It reminds us of his power. It reminds us of his plans. It reminds us of his faithfulness along the way. And what happens, neurologists uh, have identified in, in the human brain there are neurological pathways. And, and we can influence those and we can shape those. And when we begin to count our blessings, when we begin to intentionalize thanksgiving and gratefulness towards God, what it does is it burns thankful pathways, faith-filled pathways into our neurology. Now, it's not just our brains. It's our hearts and our souls as well. And what happens is then when you find yourself in a crisis, your default It's going to hit what you normally think, and you're going to go in the direction of faith instead of the direction of freak out. Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says a similar thing in in 4.6. He says, do not be anxious about anything. In other words, don't freak out. Don't freak out. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, so we're constantly talking with God, with what? With thanksgiving, remembering what he's already done. Remember every day. Count your blessings every day. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace that comes when we can remind ourselves, when we can train our hearts and our souls and our brains to default to faith 
rather than to freak out, there's a peace that comes even in the midst of the most horrific storms. Now, the disciples, well, they didn't have this kind of faith yet. (laughs) They've been walking with Jesus for a while. They have seen some crazy, miraculous stuff. In fact, they've seen him address this exact situation before with more people, and they're still wondering, what are we going to do? How are we going to navigate this? They don't have this yet. They're going to get there. They eventually, Jesus eventually hands the ministry off to them, and they're not perfect ever, this side of heaven. They're, they're not, they don't get it perfect, but they do better, and their faith grows to the point that, that they can look in the eyes of their executioners and say, I will not recant because I know Jesus is good and He is in control. So something happens. Their practical faith builds, and so can yours. Second thing, though, is this, and this is super, super important because we have to have grace for ourselves in the journey. Number two, don't be surprised when you forget your faith. Don't be surprised when you forget in the moment. See, I I think in part, this is a story of Jesus understanding that his followers don't understand. (laughs) This is a story of Jesus knowing that we're going to not know in the moment, that we're going to forget. This This helps us understand that faith is a slow building process. And we need to have grace for one another in that, and we have to have grace for ourselves in that. You will forget from time to time. This gives me hope because, you know, as a 51-year-old pastor, sometimes I forget. Um, And I'm guessing you do too. What goes on, it says, after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. The Pharisees, of course, are, are our villains in our story. They, are the, they oppose Jesus at every turn. We like to think of them as, uh, you know, the stormtroopers from Star Wars. Um, to test him, they asked him a sign, or they asked him for a sign from heaven. And I'm thinking, what did he just do? I mean, I guess they were on the other side of the lake. They missed that or whatever. He sighs deeply. And he says, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And again, I'm thinking, well, Jesus, you just, you just multiplied. You just, you just did Olive Garden, like the very first bottomless bowl of bread in a miraculous way. And, and, but he's not going to do a sign for the, the religious leaders. And he's making a statement here that I think is really, really important and for an important reason. He knows he could give them a sign and it would make no difference whatsoever. It might impress them for a moment, but Jesus knows that sign-based faith is temporary faith. Sign-based faith is temporary faith. He's not opposed to signs. He does them to affirm and confirm who he was and who he is. But he doesn't want us building our faith on, on that because it doesn't work. We see this in the disciples. How many miracles, how many healings, how many deliverances, how many walking on water, how many calming the storm? How much stuff do you have to see, signs, to have this unshakable faith? That's not how you get there, right? And we see this in the Old Testament as well, the Israelites in Egypt, right? They, uh, Moses comes to, to set them free. They have 50-yard line seats for 10 plagues that 
come against the Egyptian people but leave the Israelites alone. I mean, not two plagues, you know, so, so they have the, the locusts and then the, the frogs, and they're like, well, those are natural occurrences. They, they, no, 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 no. They, this is 10 plagues. The last one, they watch the angel of death take the firstborn male of every Egyptian and leave their kids alone. They see all this. They're right at the front row. They're watching it. And then they watch the Pharaoh release them, and they go and they find themselves at the edge of the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh changes his mind, and the army's coming down on them at the edge of the Red Sea. And of course, their reaction is, well, our, our God is going to come through for us because he came through the last 10 times. No, that wasn't their reaction. Their reaction was, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? They forgot what God had just done, the signs they had just Scene. And then God splits the Red Sea and they walk across on dry land and the Egyptian army comes in behind them and they turn around and they watch the Egyptian army get swallowed up in the sea as the walls of water come crashing down on them and the whole thing is over and it is a miracle and it is undeniably God and they are in and they know their God is real and then they get to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up on the mountain and there are signs. I mean, there's uh, clouds and storms and lightning and fire on the mountain. And how many days does it take to get to the point where they're worshiping a golden calf and having an orgy in the desert? 40. It takes 40 days to get there because you can't build your faith on signs. God knows they don't build a lasting faith. Oh, they have a part to play in our journey. But it's not how we build a lasting, it's not how we build a practical faith, because we'll forget. It's human nature. We're just all in until the next problem or the next storm. Now, Jesus did a lot of signs, so he wasn't opposed to them. And I don't want you to hear that. But he just knew we couldn't build a lasting faith on them. Well, in verse 13, it says, Then he left them. He got back into the boat and he crossed to the other side. So he, he's like, Pharisees, mic drop, bye, I'm not dealing with you, and he just goes back over to the other side. Now, I, I, you know, I think we forget, again, we look at the, the Pharisees like they're a bunch of evil villains, and, um, and in reality, I think they're a lot like us, or maybe we're a lot like them. You know, they, 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 were, the, they were the ones who won the Sunday School Awards, Right? They, they were the ones that went to church every Sunday. They had perfect life group attendance. Um, they read their Bibles every day. They knew more about the Bible than anybody else. And yet, they're standing here opposing Jesus, the Son of God. They are, there is a problem in the midst of doing all the right things. They're missing the right one. They're missing Jesus. We think their stormtroopers are more like just churchy people. And, and, and guys, the problem was not the fact that they knew the Bible. The problem was not the fact that they went to, to church every Sunday or were involved in life groups or anything. Those are all good things and to be encouraged. The problem was they wrestled with hypocrisy and control. See, when you get power and knowledge, they knew more than everybody else 
about the Bible and about God. And so, so they were the authority, and, 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 and the temptation in that situation is that then you get to be the person in control because you know more. You get, to, you get to judge people. You get to tell people what they can and can't do. You get to be in control, and control is an addiction. Power is an addiction that will corrupt our hearts every single time. It leads to hypocrisy because we are so busy looking at other people's faults that we can't see our own anymore, which was part of the problem with these religious leaders. And we have to fight the temptation to control other people. We have to fight the temptation to think that we somehow have a, a, a leg up on everybody else. We're at a higher level than those people. Because then you have a propensity to look at others' faults, and that blinds you to your own. Well, in verse 14, it says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Now, I think this is hysterical. They had seven baskets of leftover bread, and they brought one breadstick. Did they send doggy bags home? Whether it said Olive Garden on the side, just sent them all. all I mean, what, where did all the bread go? Well, they have one piece of bread, and Jesus is like, I'm kind of hungry. We only have one bread. I don't know. What are we going to do, Jesus? You know, it's almost like, um, so they have one. And then Jesus turns this into a metaphor. He, he says, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, you need to understand that in, in, in the Hebrew and, and the Jewish religion, yeast was a symbol of sin. You know, at Passover, they get all the yeast out of the house. It's getting all the sin out of the house. It didn't mean that they don't eat um, bread with yeast in it. They do, uh, and they did. Uh, it just it, It's a symbol for that. And so Jesus is like, the sin of the Pharisees and the sin of Herod, which I think adding Herod in there is a really interesting twist because Herod was not a religious leader. He was a political leader. He was a king. And the, and the, the Pharisees certainly were religious leaders, but there was a political aspect to their leadership as well. But this doesn't, wasn't just a religious problem. What was the sin of the Pharisees and Herod? And I think it was their addiction to their power and their control to the point that they couldn't surrender to Jesus. You know, Lord Acton in 1887 is famous for this saying. You probably didn't know it was Lord Acton, but this is what he said. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is something corrupting about power. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have power. It means that you have to fight that corruption with everything you have or it will take you over. And you will do anything to hold on to it. You will lie to yourself. You'll twist reality. You'll practice hypocrisy. You'll look around and blame everyone around you. It just works that way. And what Jesus is saying by the, uh, the void, the yeast of the Pharisees, is that even a little bit of that will work its way into every part of your life. The, the, the f yeast, today we go and we get a little pack of 
yeast and it's freeze-dried and all that. They didn't have that. But you just take a little bit and you put it into a big lump of dough, and within a few hours it has worked its way through every part of the dough. It doesn't just stay in one corner of the dough. It goes everywhere. And what Jesus is... Back then they would just take a, a portion of yesterday's dough stick it in the new new dough, and it would work through every part of the dough. That's how yeast works. And Jesus is saying this, this little bit of sin, this, this love of power, this love of control, it will work its way through your entire life and corrupt every part of your life. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. I've said this, I've said this in previous weeks. I'll say it again, guys. We see this. You see this in, in politics. You see politicians get a little bit of power and they love it and they want to control every aspect of your life. And you'll see this with a, a young, a young police, new police officer who gets a badge and a gun. And now they're like the most powerful, per, you know, they kind of like pushing people around because they're the most powerful. I'm, I'm in charge, you know. You, and, um, and they have to learn some humility along with It's human nature. Well, the religious leaders were not about to give up their authority for God. They were not. They, they were God's authority. They were the ones who got to decide. And when Jesus comes on the scene, they're, th they're saying to Jesus, how dare you challenge us, son of God? we were in a few good men, the Pharisees would have said, you can't handle the truth. It was tense because they were drunk on their own power and again are missing the very Son of God. So what's the solution to that? Well, it's quite simple in point number four in our message, which is this. Surrender-based faith changes everything. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to you, he's saying to anyone who will listen, surrender everything. Fight the temptation of power and position. Let it go. Surrender it to me. And guys, the disciples don't get this. They're going to struggle with this in the weeks ahead. We're going to watch them argue about who gets to be the greatest and who gets to most, have the most power, authority, and control in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus is like shaking his head going, oh my gosh, it gets pretty bad here coming up. And it's because these things corrupt our hearts. Whether we're a political leader or a religious leader or if we're just wanting to maintain control of our own lives. It's an illusion. He needs to be in control. We'll get drunk on this, the power of controlling our own lives, and we'll become a tyrant. And it leads to fear. It leads to anxiety. It leads to worry. It leads to freaking out in the moment and to losing our faith along the way. See, surrendering to what Jesus wants to do is the most powerful thing you can do. But here's the rub. It's a threat to our own power, our own control. But it's a pathway to freedom and faith and peace. I'm telling you, total surrender and constant thanksgiving will change your life 
in the most profound ways. And instead of asking for a sign, surrender your power, your authority, and control. Surrender your stuff, your relationships, your sexuality, your plans, all of it, everything. Surrender it to Him. And practice thanksgiving. Count your blessings. And the next time you need to feed 4,000 people or get through whatever situation you're facing, it won't be that big of a deal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you hold our lives in your hands. Help us to remember that. Help us to get that deep into our hearts, our souls, and our minds. Lord, help us to practice thanksgiving and help us to surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.